0: Well, if as, a, if as a Christian, you've ever uh, had moments where you um, are just very aware that you don't really belong in this world, uh, where your Christian convictions leave you out of step with those around you, whether that's in your workplace, uh, sports team, when we used to do those things, um, maybe even within your own family or just in society more broadly, uh, if you've felt out of step with those around you, if this awareness has ever bothered you, really provoked you, um, I think Psalm 137 will be an encouragement to you. So I'll invite you all to turn to Psalm 137 at this time. And just as you are, just a few comments by way of, of background to this psalm. Uh, this Psalm 137 was written during Babylonian exile. Now, you can read this, I'm sure you have, in 2 Kings, at the end of 2 Kings 24 and 25. Uh, You can read about it at the end of 2 Chronicles as well. Additionally, Jeremiah, he lived in Jerusalem during the the last days before uh, it was completely leveled by the Babylonians. That's when he ministered. Uh, So you can read about this in the book of Jeremiah as well. Uh, Additionally, Daniel... You remember Daniel? Well, he was one of the first, one of the early exiles to go from Judah uh, into Babylonian exile. He served at Nebuchadnezzar's court, the uh, the, uh, king of Babylon. Likewise, Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied. If you remember the Kibar Canal where he was with some of the exiles and when he received his visions. And he prophesied to the Jews who were in exile. Uh, So contemporary of Jeremiah, only he's in Babylon as he's preaching and and carrying out his ministry. So this exile came as a judgment from God upon the people of uh, Israel, while specifically Babylonian exile was for the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, The northern kingdom had already been taken into exile earlier by the Assyrians, uh, and now, now it was time for the southern kingdom as well. So this is following many, many... Many years of faithlessness and disobedience to the Lord, uh, to continual violations of his law over and over again, God was slow to anger, sent many prophets to call them back to faithfulness, back to trusting in the Lord, back to the covenant. And uh, sometimes they would for a little while and, and things would go well. And then sure enough, you know, the, you know the pattern. And eventually God did bring about the promise he made Uh, When he gave the law, when he struck covenant with them at Sinai, he promised there would be curses if they disobeyed, and one of those curses ultimately was being taken into exile. And sure enough, this came to pass for Judah. Yet even as God brought about this exile, it was that it was his doing, the nation who engaged in it, namely Babylon, acted in tremendous wickedness as they mercilessly plundered Israel. And so from the divine perspective, from God's perspective, uh, this was his just judgment upon them. And so we can say that it was good in that way, that it was God's just judgment for uh, the nation of, of Judah. And yet on a, on a human level, when we consider the actions of, of Babylon, tremendous evil also occurred at the same time. Now, we find this in a number of places throughout the Bible, this, you know, that God is working good out of man's wicked ways. We see it in the life of, of Joseph very clearly, M- maybe most of all in the crucifixion of Christ. I mean, I mean what is a more wicked, wicked thing than to, to nail the Son of God, the, the perfect one, to the cross? And yet, Acts 4 tells us very clearly this was God's predestined plan, that he meant it for good to bring about the salvation of his people. So we see this in a number of places. Uh, Habakkuk is another one. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, attended our church when we went through Habakkuk. That might have been before everybody here even. That's crazy. Um, but, uh, but, but if you remember the book from reading it, um, Habakkuk complains to the Lord because of the evil that he sees in, in Judah. Uh, he's, he's very upset about this, and the Lord tells him he's going to do something about it. He's sending the Babylonians. He's sending the Chaldeans. And then that, of course, raises the obvious next question and complaint from Habakkuk. They're worse than us. How how does this make sense? How is that this judgment you're bringing upon us? And God goes on to to call Habakkuk to live by faith, trust him. Uh, Babylon will have their time as well under God's judgment. And so the Babylonians, as they came and destroyed Jerusalem, they licked their wicked chops as they fell upon this city and plundered it, uh, believing even themselves to be superior to, to the Lord, to Yahweh, to God. As the exiles went off into Babylon, it was a, uh, there was a mixture for life in exile. It was a bit of a mixed bag. But in, in many cases, though, living conditions were decent. Babylon prospered. They had a complex system of irrigation that allowed for uh, abundant crops uh, that, that, that Kibar Canal that, that Ezekiel talks about, that's one of, those, uh, one of those part of that whole system, brought fruitful harvests. As, as was read at the start of the service in Jeremiah 29, um, the, the uh, Jews were told to seek the welfare of the place they were going, to plant, to have families, and, and to seek the good of the, their neighbors and so on around them. Nevertheless, all was not okay For the faithful remnant as they were in Babylon. For the godly who were in exile. We obviously see that in Daniel's life. And we read of that in Ezekiel. Even as he's lamenting the situation. And as he's prophesying. Uh, Chapter 19 of Ezekiel is one such place. The God-fearing in exile were tortured by the taunts and the schemes of the mockers. Of their enemies, of the Babylonians. And they were tortured by knowledge that their exile was a display of God's judgment upon them. And Psalm 137 is one place where we uh, see the anguished soul of the faithful in exile. So I'm just going to begin. Let's start by reading just the first four verses together. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I trust you see some of the anguish that's expressed here, the the turmoil that this psalmist and those he's speaking on behalf of, the faithful remnant, the the anguish that they were experiencing— Now, the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, these are two major rivers that flowed through the land of Babylon. And again, there were various waterways built off of those, bringing abundance. And yet, as the psalmist and his kin sat down there, it was a time for them to weep as they thought about Zion, that is, as they thought about Jerusalem, the destroyed capital of Judah. The abundance of Babylon was hard to enjoy when the city that bore the very temple of God and his special presence on the earth lay in smoldering ruins. These exiles hung up their lyres, these harp-like stringed instruments. They hung them up in the trees in seeming defiance of their captors and tormentors who were demanding of them happy song. I was talking to Floyd just before the service and just about how it's possible... Um, Floyd had brought this up, that these are Levites. Uh, I think it's very plausible that this author is a Levite and maybe his, those he was with were Levites. They were the, the ones who knew the songs and had the ability to play the songs. And you can easily see this picture, this scene, the native Babylonians uh, demanding a show of sorts. You're the temple singers uh, for, the, for the great Yahweh. Uh, sing us a tune. They're demanding their happy songs from them mocking all the while, tormenting these people, mocking God, the greatness and mightiness of your God, and yet here you are. And so verse 2 reveals a measure of protest. They're they're hanging up their liars. They can't do this. As one author writes, the exiles refuse to expose the songs and high claims of Zion to ridicule. They, they, They do not want to do this. You're going to mock, forget it. And this results then in this question in verse 4. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing of Jerusalem's greatness, God's chosen city, when it's a smoldering wreck? How can we sing of the Lord's might and greatness throughout all the earth when our very presence in this place, Babylon, suggests to everyone around us that God is not, in fact, great? How do we do this? There are parallels to this situation and to the New Testament church, to our lives. Um, There are obviously differences as well, important differences. Uh, First of all, we're obviously not in Babylonian exile due to judgment. Um, Obstacles that the church faces, that Christians face, that doesn't mean when we face suffering and difficulty, that doesn't mean that... Uh, we are experiencing the judgmental wrath of God against us in the same way that, that the nation of Israel was at this time. But nevertheless, the Bible does speak of, the, of our lives, New Testament believers, being a time of exile among the Gentile nations. Peter uses this language in 1 Peter, uh, right at the opening verse in chapter 1, verse 17 as well, and in chapter 2 also and I would contend he's, he's not just writing to Jewish Christians there. He's writing to Christians. And this exile he speaks of is living amongst these Gentile nations. The New Testament church does exist. We don't have our own border and boundaries. We exist within other countries, other nations. And our citizenship is indeed in heaven. But the full inheritance of our homeland is something we await And as we wait, the reality of our current exile becomes apparent when suffering falls to us, when we're completely out of step with the world around us. I think we're experiencing this probably more more and more now, feeling this way, more out of sorts, more disconnected from the nation we live in, less and less at home. And this can lead to the question... How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How how am I to muster joy in this moment? How can we sing of the Lord's might and the Lord's goodness when it seems he's silent, when it seems that evil is having its way? How do you sing... Joyful songs of God's greatness when our, our songs are mocked. Our trust in the Lord is, is ridiculed. How do we do this when the professing Christian church seems riddled with charlatans and all manner of wild doctrines? And just, just a glance at you know, evangelical Christianity in general is very unimpressive and is, is mocked. I think these are feelings that we might wrestle with at any given time. And yet even as this psalm is expressing and and raising this question, how can we sing the Lord's song? even as it's lamenting the the reality they're facing, the situation they're in, the psalm is also pointing us toward an answer. So I want to draw your attention to two ways of promoting worship and song, even as we live out our days uh, in exile here. The first is to stir up loyalty to the kingdom of God where your true citizenship lies. To stir up loyalty to the kingdom of God where your true citizenship lies. So again, under the old covenant, that is the covenant that God entered into with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, Jerusalem was later chosen by God to be the centerpiece of their life, of this covenant nation. It's where God obviously placed his temple, it was their capital city. There's the the location of their their temple, the unique place of God's earthly dwelling, the center of the nation's worship, the center of the the whole of society, really. In the time of this psalm, then, to love the Lord was to love Jerusalem. And so, verse 5 appropriately says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This is not some idolatrous uh, worship of a city. The city is above their highest joy. That might sound over the top. Um, But it's the place where the Lord himself had chosen to dwell in his temple. And so for the faithful in exile, forgetting Jerusalem is tantamount to forgetting the Lord. Better than to be unable to speak or to be unable to skillfully use their hands. Again, if these are Levites, this would refer to their tongue clinging to the roof of their mouth, unable to sing, unable to play their instruments. That would be preferable than to forgetting the Lord. If that, and so it's a, it's a curse of sorts. If such a thing were to happen, to forget Jerusalem. And so, having Jerusalem as one's highest or chiefest joy is a poetic way of saying that the Lord is to be their highest joy, since it is the Lord who chose Jerusalem, since it is the Lord who is worshipped there, and since it is He who makes the city great. In these verses, the psalmist is stirring up affection and uh, faithfulness to God. We, we might read verse 4 and it might seem defeatist. It might seem like a rather hopeless statement. Uh, how can we sing the Lord's song, right? This is impossible. This is ridiculous. This is useless, hopeless. It could seem that way. Uh, but as Derek Kidner writes in his commentary, verses 5 and 6 reveal that the declaration from verse 4 springs from a burning loyalty, which the disaster has only raised to a new pitch of intensity. So it's the fierce loyalty of the psalmist to the Lord and to the Lord's city that makes this situation in exile so torturous and so painful. He struggles with Zion's songs because he is zealous for the Lord's glory and for pure worship. And pure temple worship is impossible at this time. There is no temple. And so this brings pain into these joyful songs. Further, their captives mock the glory of God as his people are laid low. And so the psalmist is finding it a struggle. It's true that the name of God is being blasphemed at this time among the Gentiles because of the unfaithfulness of the Lord's people. They look at the Lord's people. They're being trounced by their enemy, and therefore their God is very, very, seems very weak. This is how it was always understood. Whatever God of the triumphing army, that was the God who was you know, more powerful or whatever. That's how this was viewed. And so even if you're the psalmist and you know that all other gods are pretenders and are false gods, it's even all the more enraging when someone mocks the true God. And yet it is precisely him who's brought about the situation because of the unfaithfulness of his people. And so this, this anguish is brought about because of the zeal that the psalmist has for the Lord. And this even this stirs up his loyalty to the Lord as he's proclaiming almost this curse upon himself if he were to forget Jerusalem, forget his God. We read in Hebrews 11 that Old Testament saints uh, looked beyond even earthly Jerusalem to a greater inheritance, uh, to a heavenly city, they looked to earthly Jerusalem while they were awaiting God's promise of the great son of David to arrive there and to usher in the eternal kingdom. So, even in exile, they looked to Jerusalem and they looked to the restoration of David's throne. A key promise as God had made to his people through the prophets, through David himself, yet awaited fulfillment in Jerusalem. And so, for the psalmist, this psalmist operating under the old covenant. His earthly home, he knows, his true home, where he belongs, is with the Lord and with his covenant people in Jerusalem. Again, if this is a Levite, this is where he should be serving the Lord. That's where he truly belongs, worshiping there and awaiting God's promises to be fulfilled. And of course, in time, the Lord did bring the people of Judah back to the land. And many years later, did send the son of David, who eventually came and inaugurated the new covenant. And so now, since that time, people enter into a covenant relationship with God, uh, not through circumcision or joining the nation of Israel, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a faith that springs forth from regeneration, from being born again, from having a heart that is made new and renewed, By the Spirit of God. And so, worshipers of God now come to God in the name of Jesus to worship in spirit and in truth, as Jesus taught us. Not to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple has served its purpose, but the curtain has been torn in two. And the way to the Father is now through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Christ has come. It is here now, but it has not been fully inaugurated. That is, it is here now, but it is not yet here in its fullest manifestation. As I said, people enter the kingdom now through saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. when the Spirit of God makes a dead sinner alive through the hearing of the gospel. This message that Jesus has died for sinners and risen from the dead, and that all who believe in him will be forgiven, be wiped clean of their sin, granted an eternal inheritance, and when those sinners respond in repentance and faith. And such Christians become part of the church. And churches are like little outposts where God's kingdom citizens gather now while we live out our lives in this time of exile, as Peter calls it, awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to usher in the full expression of his kingdom. Paul captures it in these words in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So, Paul's saying there, we're, we're citizens of heaven, and we're awaiting from heaven the Savior. Of course, the Savior has come once. What's he talking about? It's this, his, his return. right? His return in glory. When the... Bodies of believers will be raised imperishable when the Lord will usher in his kingdom in all of its eternal glory and fullness. That's the inheritance to which we await. And so I would suggest that as you are aggravated by the world, as you are aware of your exile, that your citizenship is not here ultimately, for whatever reason, for whatever reason you're stirred up by this, I would encourage you to dwell upon the reality of your heavenly citizenship and to stir up, to allow that to stir up your loyalty to God. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. As Hebrews 12 says that you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And as you await for that heavenly Jerusalem to come down out of the sky as Revelation 21 depicts, stir your soul with thoughts of the incomparable glory of Christ's kingdom that is to come in fullness compared to what is here now, to live in light of that reality. It's true that you don't find perfect comfort here. You you shouldn't find perfect comfort here. Uh, If you are perfectly at home here, that, that's, a, that's a bad sign. Because a Christian's true citizenship is in heaven. It is a citizenship that has been purchased and paid for by the blood of Christ. And So dwell upon this, consider this, that it might stir up within you a, a fierce loyalty to your kind king remembering the glory of his eternal kingdom. Now, this will help you. This will help us to sing the Lord's songs even as we wander about in this foreign land, even as we are stick out, even as we feel out of place. We will be able to sing because of where our true citizenship lies and our eternal inheritance that yet awaits us. Secondly, remote joyful song during your present exile. Place hope in the faithfulness and justice of God. Place hope in the faithfulness and justice of God. Uh, Verse 7 expresses a desire for justice, while verses 8 and 9 reveal a confidence that it's going to come to pass. So uh, look at verse 7 with me. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. This verse is a prayer that God would bring about justice on Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. You remember Esau, the brother of Jacob. They were neighbors, a neighboring nation. Uh, They were um, east of, of Judah. And as Jerusalem was being destroyed, they were cheering them on. They were cheering on the Babylonians. The prophet Obadiah also discusses this, indicating that the Edomites joined in the looting and cheered on. And that's certainly what the psalmist is saying here. They rejoiced at Jerusalem's fall as enemies of God, saying, lay it bare to its foundations. They're saying, strip it naked, leave nothing. Raise it to the ground. So This request to remember this is a request for God to not allow such treachery to go unnoticed to not let their wickedness pass by, but to have it to be brought into the court of God and dealt with as it deserves. He's praying for justice. Then in verse 8, the attention turns back to Babylon. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This psalm ends with probably the most, some of the most shocking words in the whole of the Bible, frankly. But even when you consider other imprecatory psalms, uh, this still stands out. It's jarring. And yet before we would just dismiss it, as being pure evil Uh, before we would get self-righteous and say, oh, you shouldn't have felt that. On the other hand, before we start wielding this kind of language too casually, um, let's just consider a few things. Uh, In verse 8, the psalmist declares that Babylon is doomed to be destroyed. Uh, He doesn't request it. He just declares it. It's going to be the daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. He just requested Edom to be destroyed, not, or to be judged. Uh, now he's just saying this nation is doomed to be destroyed. This is an interesting uh, difference, and I think it's important. Uh, when Jeremiah prophesied during Jerusalem's decline, God made it very clear that the city was going to fall. Again, telling the people to, to when you get hauled off, you know, live in that land and, and, and seek its welfare. However, God also had issued a a judgment on Babylon. God would come for Babylon as well. So in Jeremiah 51, for example, Jeremiah prophesied the coming total destruction of Babylon. In that chapter, God declares that his purpose, he says his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord. The vengeance for his temple. That's verse 11 of Jeremiah 51. So recompense or repayment was determined by God for Babylon. As they did to Jerusalem, so God would do to them through the Medes and the Persians. The empire that would supplant Babylon. And so I would submit that the author of Psalm 137 is well aware of this. In fact, I mentioned already Habakkuk also had prophesied Babylon would go down to God's judgment as well. So I would suggest the psalmist is aware of this. He knows what God has said. He knows judgment will come. And so he's really only declaring here what God himself has already declared through other prophets. It is doomed to destruction, Babylon. And he's adding here the psalmist, that the instrument of God's wrath, when viewed from the divine perspective, is blessed. When he says, blessed shall he be, in the sense that he's carrying out a divine judgment. Notice verse 8 saying, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. This is retributive justice. It's, it's the eye for an eye, Old Testament concept. This is what God said What happened to Babylon in Jeremiah through the prophet Jeremiah. This verse, you know, verse 8 and 9, particularly verse 9, is certainly very harsh. It's intentionally, I think, you know, jarring. Uh, it's white hot, as one author put it. But if you had lived through this very treatment that's described here, you might feel a little differently. You might more easily see the justice of having Babylon receive their own actions coming back on their heads. I don't think verse 9 is particular animosity towards individual babies or children, but it is viewing the wicked nation of Babylon as a whole. This, whole, this, this nation as a whole justly receiving the same brutal treatment that they doled out to Jerusalem and to others as well that they conquered, which included the slaughter of babies. This is a sober reminder of just the, um, the sinfulness of, of humanity um, it, there's a reason in, when you read prophecies in, in Daniel and again in, in Revelation and it's talking about nations, why they're depicted as these wild, crazy beasts, you know, rising out of the sea and so on. Uh, because that's, that's, that's the divine symbolic view of nations of men. And there's a reason for that. And this is a, a sober reminder of it. It's a reminder of, of God's justice. It's a foreshadow of the end when final cosmic justice will prevail, when God will judge every individual. Now, God's justice does not always sit well with us. Again, we, we, we want to think more highly of ourselves. We want to think more highly of our world. But God's standard is so far above ours. God's own holiness is so far above Greater than what we can even fully comprehend. And so I submit that this is a reminder again for us to tremble at the thought of God's justice and to look to Jesus, who satisfied the just demands of God by dying in the place of sinners and rising from the dead. That the, the wrath of God against sinners satisfied in the death of Christ as gospel people we do not simply declare god's holiness and law and justice we also point to the mercy of god in christ that there is a fountain that there is forgiveness of sins available to all who trust in the lord jesus christ but i also think is from this psalm, we uh, we should be reminded that as we live as exiles in a immoral, perverted society, nah, it's not, I'm not being inflammatory. That I mean, it's just a fact. And as we see that those who would stand for that which is true, as we see such people getting slammed, getting. Ridiculed, getting canceled, whatever, jailed. When we see good being called bad and, and, and evil being called good, it is right for us, it is right for you to rest in God's faithfulness and in His promise of judgment to come. We can get so out of, so bent out of shape at all the that we see it gets so overwhelming at the wickedness we find and it is it is so frustrating and we can't avoid it often and yet at some point we have to stop and realize it's not your job and it's not my job to bring about perfect justice we can say the right things we can do what we can with the limited Voice we have, but ultimately, vengeance belongs to God. All things will be made right in his timing. And so where injustice, wickedness prevails today, anywhere you see it, calm your soul in the reality of God's justice. We, we point to mercy, we proclaim Christ, we proclaim the forgiveness of sins. But we also rest knowing that where wicked people would persist, where they would persist in despising God and despising His law, they will one day answer to the Lord. Our time on earth is a pilgrimage. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. And though much is not right here and now, we can still sing the songs of Zion this is not our home. Christ has purchased us and God has delivered us into his kingdom. He is faithful and in the end all things will be made right. That is his prerogative. Every thing done in every dark corner will be brought into the light before God. And if that reality troubles you, knowing the darkness of your own soul, I would plead with you to seek refuge in Christ died for sinners. Only he can deliver you from the wrath to come, from the judgment and justice of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even where it's difficult and says says things that are difficult to, to process sometimes and deal with. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your... your judgments that your judgments are righteous for the reminder of of the brutal consequences of sin and for our need for a savior to rescue us from our own sinfulness and our need for the savior to return and to set all things right father thank you that we can have the hope of being citizens of your heavenly kingdom now And we do await that time when the Lord Jesus returns with trumpet, with trumpet sound and gathers his people and establishes his kingdom in all of its fullness and glory. Father, grant us calm and stilled hearts knowing that none of this is unforeseen by you. That even amidst all of the turmoil, you are moving history along to its appointed end. Father, give us courage to speak, to speak about that which is true, to, to lovingly be willing to put our necks on the lines, to object when good is called evil and when evil is called good and to be willing and quick to point people to your son, to point people to your store of, storehouse of mercy. Father, I pray that in this time your churches would, would proclaim this good news of salvation. The churches that have have dissolved into irrelevancy with no relevant voice would reclaim this message and proclaim it. I pray that many would yet come to faith right here in in Regina, in Weyburn, all around the country. Father, give us opportunities to to speak with our neighbors and others we, we meet, even as we're less and less people are out Father, I pray that you would give us much joy, that you would calm any troubled souls here in the reality of your sovereignty and of your goodness and of your good purposes, even that we can't, we we often can't see or understand. And yet we read about it in your word over and over. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your, your word again. We pray that you'd bless uh, the rest of our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.